You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Good morning, New Heights Church. Merry Christmas. Hope all of you guys had a uh, wonderful time with loved ones and family over the past couple of days, maybe even weeks or months. Uh, I know we start celebrating Christmas all the way back in October. Um, But thank you so much for choosing New Heights as your place of worship this morning. If if this is your first time here, um, thank you for choosing to come and worship with us. You should have received a uh, what we call a Connect card. If you could, fill that out, and after the service, take it out to the tent outside to the left. Um, it gives us a record of your visit, and we'd like to get to know you a little bit more. Um, so we're going to be continuing in our sermon series through uh, the different psalms. And today, uh, if you want to go ahead and turn your Bible on, We're going to be in Psalm chapter 98. So if you want to go ahead and make your way there, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we are going to dive right in. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for sending your son to come and pay a price that we could not afford. I pray that as we read your text, that you open up our hearts, open up our minds for understanding, convict us where we need convicted, Mold us more into the image of your Son, God. I pray that as we read and we, we see your glory on display through your power, through your salvation, through your faithfulness, that we will be a people that rejoice and give you the praise and worth that you are deserving of. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to go ahead and read the text before we start to break it down a little bit. So Psalm... Oh, sorry. If you're a kid, uh, go ahead... And uh, go with Jeremy Berry. (laughs) You are dismissed. If you're a kid, go to the gym. All right. Now we're going to read Psalm 98. Follow along with me. I think it should be on the screen behind me. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar in all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And so the psalm that we just read, Psalm 98, is is actually uh, a group of six different psalms that is known as the enthronement psalms. This is the fifth of the six and the enthronement psalms paint a constant theme throughout their text. And that theme is to highlight Christ as Lord and sovereign over all of creation. And so we see this theme continued through the text that we just covered. And so if you are a note taker, I have two main themes, two main points, if you will, this morning. The first, we are going to see the glory of our Savior. And secondly, we're going to see the response of his people. And so as we go throughout this text... There's going to be a couple different ways in which we see Christ's glory made manifest. One, through his power, through his salvation, and through his faithfulness. 
And I would argue that when we, as a chosen people of God, come to a realization and remember to study the glory of God, we have but one response, and that is to worship him, for he is worthy. If we fail in our worship of God, what we've ultimately failed is we've failed to see the glory and the value and the worth that he truly deserves. If you are a covenant member of the promises of God given to his people, you cannot ignore your call to give him the worth and praise that is due his name. And so let's read the first couple of verses again. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So what does it mean when the psalmist writes to sing a new song to the Lord? And so as we cover these couple of verses here, the first part of the text, I want us to look at it in two different views this morning, both of which are biblical and both of which are evident in the text. The first view is going to be the spiritual view and the fact that as Christians in 2021, we have all of Scripture, the New Testament, to interpret the Old Testament. And so we are going to see this victory text of a bigger picture of salvation. And that is the spiritual salvation of God's chosen people, fulfilled and wrapped up in the finished work of Christ. And the second view I'm going to attempt for us to look at it, which is just as biblical and applicable to us, is the more historical view in which we attempt to understand this text as an Old Testament saint, and how this individual, the psalmist, is writing this is going through very real battles and is in very real need of salvation for his life, from other nations, other enemies. And I think we're going to see that evident through um, the text. And so what does it mean to sing a new song? One commentator wrote, The song of redeeming grace can never grow old. Even though the same words occur, are not his mercies new every morning? His faithfulness every night? Is not his love always at work spreading uh, meals across your table, making your bed, contriving new alleviations and delights? Look out for these till meditation induces thanksgiving. Matthew Henry wrote, If the grace of God put a new heart into our chests, it will therewith put a new song into our mouths. And so we're reminded as we read this text that as covenant members, when we see and we view the marvelous things that God has done for us, our response is to worship him. And our perspective determines our worship. While the purpose of the psalmist writing Psalm 98 here is, is unknown, we don't know what is going on in his life at this moment. We don't know whether he has just finished a battle, maybe victorious. Maybe he's currently in a battle, not sure if he's going to live to see tomorrow. Regardless, he gives praise to God. Why? It's because whatever life circumstances we are in, it doesn't change the fact that he is worthy and deserving of our praise. Amen. Charles Spurgeon says, there must be new songs on new occasions of triumph. And I love how Spurgeon worded this in the idea of saying occasions of triumph. And so this is where we're going to try to attempt to look at this from the Old Testament point of view. And so this Old Testament passage written by the psalmist has lived a life in which he has seen the glory of God on display through his strength and through his faithfulness. So we talked about it. This psalmist has had very real battles, personally, 
as a nation. Look at the wording that the author uses as he references back historically to prove a point of God's power and God's faithfulness. The psalmist is writing and praising God for the victories that Yahweh has won for them. He is remembering the faithful promises that God has made to Adam, to Abraham, to David, to Jacob, to Isaac. You see this theme all throughout the Old Testament, right? God pulls Abraham out of this pagan land and says, hey, I'm going to make you my people. I'm going to be your God. And then you see struggle after struggle after struggle, not because of God's unfaithfulness, but because of our unfaithfulness, right? Israel screws up. They go into captivity for however many hundreds of years, and then God is remaining faithful to pull them back out of captivity. And this is what the psalmist is referencing. He's saying, we have seen your faithfulness for however many hundreds of years now, and I'm going to trust you that you are going to remain faithful even today, no matter what life circumstances I might be going through. The language that the psalmist used here of his right hand and his holy arm has worked out salvation. It indicates the power of God. One commentator wrote, not only is Yahweh's right hand strong, but his arm is holy. When speaking of created things such as human beings or temples, the word holy means consecrated or set apart for a holy purpose. But when used for God, as it is here, this word holy moves to a different level. God is not a consecrated or set apart for a holy purpose. He is the fount from which all holiness springs. He is the eternal source of holiness. He is holiness personified. And so this language used to represent the power of God to bring out through salvation, we're going to see it in two different ways, the spiritual view and the historical view. So the first, in the spiritual view, we see that God alone is the author and finisher of our salvation. It is by His power and His alone that salvation is made available. We contribute nothing to the table for this salvation. It is by the hand and the arm of God alone. The fact that God is the fount from which all holiness springs is a very true and humbling reminder of our need for Christ. Not just with salvation, but with everything. Every day, we must come to a realization that we need God every second of our life. The fact that we woke up with oxygen in our lungs is God keeping us alive. The historical view in which we understand this salvation we see that the Hebrew word used for salvation here is a word called yasah. And one commentator explains it this way. Some Christians use this word almost exclusively to mean salvation from sin resulting in admittance to heaven. And while that is certainly one meaning, the word yasah is used much more broadly in the Old Testament. How it means deliverance from enemies, from mortal danger, from making a disastrous mistake, or even famine. And so again, as we're unaware of what event has led to the writing of this psalm, we can still take real application used by the psalmist and apply it to our lives in 2021. We might not be a king of a nation. We might not be fighting wars each and every day of our life. We might not have to fear necessarily if we're going to live to see tomorrow. But we all have our battles that we go through. Whether it be a sin that you can't defeat, whether it be not knowing where that money is going to come, for, uh, come from for the bill next month. Maybe the past two years have been tough financially. Maybe it's health-related issues. We're reminded through the text that we have a God who is on our side. We have a God who is faithful. We have a God who is powerful. 
You don't have to fight that sin alone. God is the source of all holiness, and we lean on him for his help. We trust in God to provide our needs. We rest in the gospel when we're going through difficult times. And all of this sounds really good, right? The idea of like me coming up here, Pastor Will, Pastor Jeremy, Pastor Patrick, whoever comes up here and we say, hey, rest in the finished work of Christ. Let the gospel change your life. If you're hurting, it's okay. Trust in Jesus. But what does that, like, what does that mean practically? Right? Because the last thing I want you to think is there's this magical word that you just rest in Jesus and then that bill magically gets paid somehow. Because it's not going to happen that way, right? So practically, how does this actually take effect? And I would argue that the way that this takes effect is first and foremost through a group of sinners that Christ has beautifully brought together known as the church. And so church, the people to your left, the people to your right, in front of you, behind you, lean on them. You are part of a local body that has been brought together by the sovereignty of God to help each other through all of life's circumstances. Your local body, the people next to you, is not simply a group of people that you see on Sunday morning and you say, Merry Christmas, how's your week been? But instead, Christ has given each and every single one of us here different gifts, different talents, different social status. Some of you are wealthy, some of you are poor. And God has given each of us different abilities, not so you could use them for yourself, but so that you can find people hurting in your local body to make them better. And so church, if you have different gifts, if you have different abilities, if God's blessed you with money and you're not using it, what is the point of being at church here this morning? Use your talents, use your gifts, not to serve yourself, but to serve others around you. Verses two and three, let's read that again. It says, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love, his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And so we see here in the text that it is by God that his salvation is revealed. Spurgeon again says the Lord is to be praised not only for effecting human salvation, as we talked about earlier, but also for making it known. For man would never have discovered it for himself. You cannot intellectually come to a point in which you understand the grace of God unless it is first revealed to you by the working of the Holy Spirit to bring about a fancy word that we call regeneration. And that is the Holy Spirit creating in you a new heart to love God. In this text of salvation, which, which we discussed previously, means two different things, a spiritual salvation, a historical, real, physical salvation from the enemies. The salvation has been revealed in the sight of the nations, and he has remembered his faithfulness to the house of Israel. And I think it's really cool here. This Hebrew word for nations in this text is a word called goyim. Probably did not pronounce that right. But it can simply mean nations, but often... In the Old Testament, it is used to represent specifically Gentile nations, which is the pagans, the heathens, if you will, in the Old Testament. And I love how, how this is viewed. So as we look at this in the spiritual sense, we see the beauty of the gospel, plain and simple, this eternal plan from Christ to bring about the salvation not only of the Jews, but of all peoples. Whether the psalmist knew what he was writing or not, 
We see Christ taking place here in the Old Testament as we read that the righteousness is being seen by the Gentiles. Fast forward a couple thousand years, we know the New Testament. We see the Gentiles grafted into the covenant promises of Abraham, of Israel. Then we also see this text in a prophetic prophetic sense. So we see Israel is the chosen people of God. We see the New Testament then grafts in the Gentiles. And then ultimately, as we're going to see in verse 9, all of the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of God. And so we're reminded here, whether we confess Christ as king now or not, we will at some point. Scripture makes it clear, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and give the praise that is due to God for his power, for his salvation, for his faithfulness, and for his glory alone. Going on, verses 4 through 8, let's read those again. It says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar in all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. And so we see, first of all, that God is, we serve a God who cares about the way that we worship him. We see this call of worship in the text as we look at the marvelous things that God has done for us, his power, his salvation, and his faithfulness. We see the psalmist go into detail about the praise that is given to our creator. And the reason we are to worship is found in the text that we discussed. Right? for the marvelous things that God has done for us. We have seen pieces of the glory of God on display through the history of what our Savior has done, the promises, the faithfulness of what he's still yet to do, and we are reminded of his strength that we lean upon through help through life's battles. It is by his strength and his holiness alone that we have been saved from the depths of our sin. One commentator wrote, The psalmist, beholding in the spirit and the accomplishment of the promises, The advent of Christ in the glory of kingdom bids the entire earth to break forth into joy. And as we read this call for worship, I want each of us to consider our lives for a moment and check ourselves. Are we giving God the worship and the praise that is due to him? We see worship in this text explained through music, through the trumpets, through the sea roaring, through the rivers clapping. But even outside of music, how do our lives bring worth and value and worship to a holy God who has done so much for us? The idea of worship being viewed in a singing type of way here, but we know that the word worship means to acknowledge and ascribe worth to someone or something. And as I think about my own life, especially this time of year, I'm embarrassed at the lack of value and worth that I give to God. We just finished opening presents yesterday, right? My two, my two kids, we bought them a lot of stuff. We spent way more money on them than we should have. But there's something that you can't, you don't want to change when you see your, your kid open up this present and the joy that is on his face as he yells, thanks, Mom and Dad, I've always wanted this. Runs over to Leslie, the first present he opened, and gave her a big hug, Right? And so we spend way more money on our kids than we should have. Why? Because we love our kids. We, we're giving them worth, value in the form of gifts. And as I sat upstairs finishing my sermon last night, 
I was hit with this humbling reminder that if only I would show worth and value to Christ as much as I do my kids. And it goes back to perspective, right? We get so busy with life, with family, with work, with friends, you name it, that we don't often realize the lack of worth that we're giving Christ in our day-to-day life. And for some reason, we've, we've let this idea of busyness become a valid excuse. If we're honest and we think about our life, because we've allowed this word and this excuse of busyness to be valid, we use it all the time. Now, I'd argue there's, there are some times in which we are truly busy, in which we can't make time to come to church one Sunday morning because of different life circumstances happening spur of the moment. But nine times out of ten, we're using this idea, this excuse of busyness, because we don't have a right perspective on what we should. When we have our perspectives changed, when we're reminded and we focus on the importance of the gospel, of God's faithfulness, as the Holy Spirit works in us to refocus our worship off of ourself and back on the Creator, and we're reminded that as as other parts of Scripture says, to, to die to ourself daily. I heard a sermon from John Piper. This was a couple years ago, and he was explaining this idea of dying to himself daily. Um, and the, the illustration that he used is if he does not wake up and remember to kill his old self every day, then he's not going to live for God. And so he paints this picture of he sees his old sinful self on the cross, and every day he has to wake up and re-nail the, the nails back into uh, the cross, if you will. And it's this idea that, that Piper in this illustration has determined to make his perspective the first thing that he wakes up to realign his focus on the value of Christ rather than the, rather than the value of himself. I love how in this text we're reminded and we see God in the sense of creator, which I think leads well, very well into the last part of this text here in a minute as we then see God as judge. So one commentator wrote, These appeals to nature and her great departments of the sea and its mighty amplitude and the earth with its floods and hills form not a warrant but a call on Christian ministers to recognize God more in their prayers and sermons as the God of creation instead of restricting themselves so exclusively to the peculiar doctrines of Christianity. Do the one and not leave the other undone. And so there's one constant thing that all of humanity has in common. Regardless of what social status, regardless of where you're born, regardless if you're rich, poor, young, old, and that is that we have seen God do marvelous things and that we're reminding of that in the form of God as creator. Look at all throughout the scripture. The promises promises made to covenant Israel back in Genesis Um, includes creation talk. As God described to Abraham that his people was going to be as the stars in the sky, the sands on the beach. Look at the Noahic covenant where God makes a promise to Noah and he uses creation as the sign of the covenant. He says, I will put my bow in the sky to serve as a reminder to you that I am a faithful God and you are my people. Look at the Old Testament sacrifices where God uses the creation of animals to be the foreshadowing of Christ to allow the Old Testament saints to have faith in the coming one true sacrifice. And so we all, no matter where we are at in life, have a constant theme of we can see a God of creation that has done marvelous things. And Romans paints it clear that because of creation, we are without excuse. 
We see here in the text that God is so deserving of praise that he will be praised by the creation. The rivers in the sea will bring praise to God on a global scale. The word used in the text when it says for those who dwell within is a text, a Hebrew word known as yasab, which the word yasab has to do with the dwelling or setting and can be used for animals as well as people. Even the animals are going to give praise and worth to God. Let's read the last verse, verse 9. It says, Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. And I hope you, that you see here in these nine verses the gospel that was clearly laid out. So I want to circle back and summarize the text. We see a declaration in the beginning of a sovereign God who has done marvelous things. He alone has brought about salvation. He alone is the one who revealed the salvation that he brought. He alone is the faithful one as we look at the historical uh, context of Israel, of ourselves. He alone is the promise keeper. He alone is uh, the one who is faithful to us. We're the unfaithful ones. We fail to keep the promises, but yet he alone finishes us. He is the finisher of our faith. He is the one who will keep us in his grasp until we die or he returns. And when we realize these marvelous things, we are left with a decision and a command that is to bring him praise. We praise him with music. We praise him with instruments. We praise him with our entire being. Our entire life is to bring glory and worth to God. And church, if we do not bring him praise as trophies of grace, we will bring him worth and praise as vessels of wrath. God will receive the praise whether we are going to be an example of his grace and mercy or an example of his justice and his wrath. And as we read this last text, how God is eventually going to judge the world with righteousness and equity, the question that I want each one of us to consider is will the judge read your sentence as tetelestai, which is paid in full? Have you given praise to God for his marvelous acts yet? Have you allowed God's grace to transform every inch of your being? If you haven't, Scripture makes it clear that death apart from Christ is an eternity in hell, forever separated from the God of creation. And I encourage you, as we lead into communion here in a minute, and as we prepare to celebrate the gospel, the finished work of Christ, as we celebrate communion and look forward to the second advent where Jesus is going to come back for his people, if you are a Christian and you have not given the praise and worth that God deserves, repent and start giving him the praise and worth that he deserves. If you're not a Christian and you haven't first put your faith in Christ, then start living a life that is to bring God praise instead of yourself. Repent of your sin and do that. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.